All right, listeners, welcome to episode 69 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sipman, your podcast co-host. I'm here with my great friend, Sam Otherbell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. What's going on? Oh, not much. I am, as usual, so very excited to present this episode to our listeners. It's a good one. I think a lot of people have been waiting for it. Yes, this one has been in the works for a while. Certain listeners might be particularly excited for the topic of this one. It's a discussion about Philip Reef and really two of his books. The focus is a little more on the triumph of the therapeutic, but you can't really talk about that book without talking about his first one, which was Freud, The Mind of the Moralist. Yeah, so I don't want to give too much away of what we talk about in the discussion, but I did think that given that it is a little complicated and that it is, some of it, the conversation is in a specifically sort of Freudian idiom, that I would lay out a little bit of what is in each of these books very, very briefly so that our listeners are on board when we get into the discussion. That first book, The Mind of the Moralist, which came out in 1959, is really Reef's book on Freud, and he really just kind of kicks the tires of psychoanalytic theory from his perspective. As we'll talk about in the conversation, it was co-written with his wife at the time, Susan Sontag. But the Freud that emerges in that book is this much more moralistic sort of version of Freud than the one that we might have sort of inherited from the history of psychoanalysis in America. And he sees Freud not as a sort of libertine figure who is actively trying to unleash the sexual and liberatory impulses of the human psyche, but as this much more conservative figure who's trying to sort of create a framework for people to understand themselves in the modern world, which maintains civilization and order and balances out people's kind of impulses and reconciles them to the kind of repressive parts of morality and culture. So that's slightly different Freud than people might sort of think of when they think of Freud as this figure of dangerous sexual ideas and so on. The second book, Triumph of the Therapeutic, which we spend most of the conversation talking about, is really a much more kind of despairing and conservative book. And it's really the one where Reef begins to sort of theorize about what has happened to culture in the West in the aftermath of Freud's intervention and sort of the world wars and the onset of modernity. And I think for our listeners, they might enjoy a couple of little pithy summaries of that book from wonderful friend of the pod, George Shalaba. This is Shalaba's summary of Reef's basic refrain in this book. Quote, religion is prohibition, culture is inhibition, authority is salvation, submission is wisdom, transgression is folly, and criticism of anything but the pretensions of critical reason is impiety. You know, and so what Chalaba thinks, Reef thinks, is the only thing that can really save us is religion, God of some sort. But we can't rely on God or religion anymore. That's what has happened in modernity is that we don't really believe anymore. And Shalaba also writes in sort of describing the condition that Reef is diagnosing in Triumph of the Therapeutic that, quote, science has banished the supernatural, technology has vanquished scarcity, and so having lost its parents, ignorance and misery, morality is now an orphan. That really describes the sort of vibe of Reef in Triumph of the Therapeutic, that kind of this acquisitive psychological society that we live in now is one where the old kind of moral order, the old moral requirements and remissions no longer 
really make sense to people. And so morality and the human person is adrift in this kind of landscape of therapeutic psychological thinking. The self is understood through psychological institutions, through psychology, through a looking inward instead of outward or upward to God um, or to some other moral or cultural order. Yes. And uh, we get into all that. And also, you know, specifically how conservative intellectuals especially have kind of glommed onto Reef, Reef's importance on the right. Yeah. Reef has become so important in this thinking the right has that people who are looking for moral clarity are always looking for something to substitute for the religious sort of order that has been lost. And I think that's just like the key kind of conservative takeaway from Reef. And it's so, so with us today. Yes. Well, Sam, who did we have on as guests to talk about this with us? They were great, and I don't think we could have asked for better ones. Yeah, luckily we have two amazing guests, perfect guests for this discussion. It's Hannah Zeven and Alex Colston, the founding editor and deputy editor of the new magazine of psychoanalysis on the left, Parapraxis. Hannah Zeven is an assistant professor at Indiana University. Alex Colston is a PhD student at Duquesne University in clinical psychology. But they're both super knowledgeable about Freud, about the history of psychoanalysis. And now, thanks to us, because we forced them to read these books, Philip Reef, and they're perfect guests for this conversation. Sort of, how has the right used psychoanalysis? We've talked a lot more on the podcast in our episodes, say, with Pat Blanchfield about what the left can learn from psychoanalysis. But what has the right learned from psychoanalysis is sort of one of the orienting questions for this conversation. And they were perfect for that. Well, I don't want to delay us getting this episode. But as always, we have a few housekeeping items before we do. Thank you, especially to our partners from Descent. They sponsor the podcast, and one thing they do is for $10 a month, if you subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, for $10 a month, you get all of our bonus episodes and a free digital subscription to Descent. And of course, as always, for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus content, including our recent conversation with Tim Shank, which drew a lot of comments and insights on our Patreon page. As always, you want to thank... Our intrepid producer, Jesse Brenneman, who did a great job wrangling this complex... He was more intrepid than usual. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really complex, thorough conversation into a perfect little object for you to listen to. And we want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the podcast. And Will has a new record out. It's called Wendy. It's out from Fat Possum Records. For those of you who like the intro and outro music on the podcast, check out Will Epstein's new record, Wendy. We did want to plug uh, a new podcast. If you enjoy this episode, uh, you may enjoy this podcast. Yeah, so it's a podcast coming out hosted by none other than Pat Blanchfield and his partner, Abby Kluchin. Pat, as you will know, has been on the podcast to talk about psychoanalysis as well as to talk about guns and America's obsession with guns. Um, People love those episodes, so they'll probably really like their new podcast, which is called Ordinary Unhappiness. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think it's not ready to go yet, but you can sign up and be ready to get it as soon as it is ready. And that podcast is being put out in association with Parapraxis Magazine, where Abby and Pat are both involved in that project. So a new podcast about psychoanalysis on the left. I am so excited. Indeed. And just thank you again to Alex and Hannah. They were really superb guests, and I'm really grateful the time they took to slog through these books and talk about it with us. So uh, let's get to it, shall we? Our episode on Philip Reef's The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Enjoy.
All right, let's get started. Welcome to Know Your Enemy, Hannah Zeven and Alex Colston. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. I think all of us have only been thinking about the content of this episode for several days, if not weeks now. So I'm really excited to get started. That's right. We're going to talk about Philip Reif's 1966 book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, The Uses of Faith After Freud. The last term in that title will be especially important for this conversation. Freud, that's why we have Hannah and Alex with us. Before we get into who Philip Reif was, this book, his take on Freud, and what sense we can make of it, why don't Hannah and Alex, you tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, especially the work you're doing at the new magazine you just started. Sure. Thanks so much. So Alex and I, about a, a year and some months ago now, started a magazine called Parapraxis, which hopes to be a new magazine of psychoanalysis on the left. And so the whole magazine's principle is to think about the errors that psychoanalysis has made and remade, which in a way could, at, at like first glance, appear friendly to someone like Reef's project, but towards a kind of emancipatory horizon, which I, I don't think is exactly what Reef has in mind, even though he might borrow from the same language. Uh, I have my copy of Parapraxis right here next to me on my desk. It's a beautiful magazine. I enjoy it so much. I've read every single thing in it, and I hope to write for it someday. Of course. And, <laughs> and um, I had such a good time at the Parapraxis <laughs> party that you guys hosted in New York City and that was profiled in New York Magazine, including Alex Colston wearing his signature Freudian slip, which is a slip with Freud's face on it. <laughs> and I guess it's worth saying that parapraxis is really another word. The name of your magazine is another word for a Freudian slip. Yes. Yeah, I think we're, we're eucumenical, I guess, to put it that way, given the text we're going to talk about when it comes to psychoanalysis. But I mean, really, it's a kind of, it's a critical kind of stock taking of the errors of psychoanalysis. So, I mean, we have some fidelity to the practice and to the project into the origins of therapy, into the origins of psychoanalysis. But at the same time, we also want to be kind of clear-eyed about the mistakes that have been made in, in its name, you know, either committed by Freud or otherwise. And so Reef is kind of an interesting character here because he's, he's so faithful in Freud in a way that, I, that yeah. I'm not, actually. And so I kind of like that about his books is that he idealizes Freud to such a great extent. And then in that idealization, I think, you know, errors will surface. But I think there's something kind of like there's parapraxies as it were in the in the text themselves. Yeah, I know. That is kind of something that just like dispositionally wins me over to him a bit because I also, though I I try to be rigorous and resist this impulse, idealize Freud the man. <laughs> and Reef does the same thing. And what's interesting about the book is that he despises in many ways what we might say or you know other people might say Freud wrought, but he loves Freud. And so there's just kind of this interesting tension throughout the book. It's basically like, you know, forgive him. He knows not what he did. <laughs> <laughs> I did just want to ask Alex, both you and Hannah, did you know about this book before reading it for the podcast? Was Reef someone you knew about? Was he kind of a lion in the path? Uh, or or was this just kind of like a wacky book that maybe you'd heard of but knew nothing about and this was totally new? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had read Meyer and the Moralist before, but I had never read Triumph of the Therapeutic before. And had thought about Reef as kind of just kind of a, a, a cultural or literary oddity. 
someone who was you know, extremely literate, learned. But when I read Mind of the Moralist, I kind of always slotted it into this particular kind of American idiom of just someone who believed in psychoanalytic neutrality and thought of psychoanalysis as a form of moral control. And that's still true in my impression now, but I wouldn't say that I thought of him as someone who informed my like fundamental sense of what psychoanalysis is and does. Yeah, I read both these books for my PhD orals. I have two double training in the history of technology and the history of what we nerdily call the human sciences. So psychoanalysis, psychiatry, psychology in the long 20th century US and transnationally. And so, re- you know, read them and it's kind of like visiting with your embarrassing grandfather or something. Uh, <laughs> okay, yes, I understand. <laughs> like you fought in the Freud Wars and thank you so much. And it was beneficial. It was a, it was hard, but like to re-sit with the books, especially because they're so different. I know we're, we're really speaking about the triumph of the therapeutic, but I think we all reread Mind of the Moralist as well. And just to see a real shift in someone's thinking is always fascinating. I know. Uh, yeah. A shift down to the syntactical level. The books are are literally at the sentence level. They feel like two different authors, which I think gives rise to some of the both sort of interpretation of it being partially or mostly Sontag's text, Reef's wife at the time for the first book. And then a divorce, say, right? Like I think Alex put it like the biggest divorce to dad energy. In the history of Christendoms. You know how when you get divorced and then the way that you write becomes like way worse and like way more impenetrable yeah. and like <laughs> g- like grammatically contorted and cryptic and like pompous and aloof? That's what happens when you get divorced to your prose. I mean, the man is in pain in the second book. It seems to me. I mean, that's it's such a projection and like sort of like interpret interpretive risk <laughs> to say that. But yeah, it's just it, you're right. There's a kind of closed in writing in the terms of the therapeutic. He's he's retreated to the man cave to despair about the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> well, let's let's get into it. So Reef was born in Chicago, December 15th, 1922. He died in Philadelphia on July 1st, 2006. As was mentioned, you know, he was at the University of Chicago, and that's where he met Susan Sontag. They were married in 1950. They were married for, what, eight or nine years. He met her as his student when she was 17, and they were married 10 days after they met. Yes. We have some of the letters in the Benjamin Moser biography of Sontag, like her writing home, describing Reef. It was really shocking just how much work she did, frankly. Basically pre-writing book reviews for him, reading things so he didn't have to. So it was like one part student, one part research assistant, and then eventually was folded into that, the kind of mid-century academic wife role. They were married until 1959, and then two years later, he goes to the University of Pennsylvania where he taught sociology for about 30 years. He retired in 1992. He had a very august title, right, like the Benjamin Franklin University Professor and so on at the University of Pennsylvania. His first book, Freud, Mind of the Moralist, was published in 1959. This book, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, was published in 1966. So that seven-year gap is something we'll probably talk about too, what happened, (laughs) what was happening in America during that time. And then I just want to say... In 1973, he published this book called Fellow Teachers, which which I have read years ago. And it's a very university-centric, as the title indicates, lament about higher education. 
a collection of essays in 1990, The Feeling Intellect. In 2006, he died. And right after that, then, four books were published in like the next two years. A trilogy called Sacred Order, Social Order, My Life Among the Death Works, published in 2006, The Crisis of the Officer Class, 2007, and The Jew of Culture, published in 2008. And then there was a fourth kind of standalone study published in 2007 called Charisma. And I just wanted to read, I mentioned Benjamin Moser's biography of Sontag, and uh, some of how we've described him so far will be recognizable, I think, in this quote. This is how Moser describes Reef. In later life, an Ivy League grandee, Philip would become known for a mannered donishness. His model was the British gentleman in a bespoke suit with a bowler hat, a gold watch fob, and a walking stick. He spoke in an accent of his own invention that was somewhere to the east of the mid-Atlantic English of American patricians. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, the feeling I had reading these books was just that you have a sense of history through these kind of larger-than-life mythos of the characters in each book. They almost don't seem real in some respects. And his treatment of Freud is very similar to that. But it does remind me of a certain kind of, yeah, patrician education where the obligation is to like preserve a kind of cultural elitism around knowing the history of the West and knowing the dynamics and the kind of like different stages of history as understood in the most idealistic way imaginable. And it's just kind of interesting that he seemed so taken with Freud because Freud was an, an analyst of myth, but then Reef kind of like honors that style of or what he calls deconversion, where you, you turn to the science of myths, the scientific analysis of myths, but then, he, but then mm-hmm. he turns around and also traffics in his own myths about Freud and himself and, yeah. you know, <laughs> and Reich and, and Lawrence and all the people in the, in the book. And so I just, I think that's the most interesting tension for me is that he's a person who kind of tries to deconvert and analyze myths in a scientific register, but then ends up reproducing them in some respects. Very mid-century University of Chicago. Yes. Like if you read the right books, the right sequence of books, the right canon, right, it's kind of like a key to culture. It's funny how often the University of Chicago has come up in this podcast. (laughs) Well, (laughs) perhaps not funny. It's uh, totally symptomatic. (laughs) But one thing I wanted to say, because you were describing his kind of spotted bibliography, is that really after he wrote My Fellow Teachers, which I should say that whole book was actually just produced because he was asked to give an interview somewhere and then he responded to it with like a book length <laughs> explanation of why he didn't think that was a good idea because yeah. what, like, what he thought a university was for and what teaching is for. And that book, I mean, in addition to this kind of somewhat interesting and idiosyncratic perspective on pedagogy, which if you know that he married his uh, 17-year-old student that is uh, kind of in the mix there, but it's also just like a, a crudely bitter complaint about the student movement and how disgusted he was by the 1960s upheavals at universities in a vein that is like much more brutally embittered than even what we get in Triumph. So that book came out, and then he basically retreated completely from public life. Every once in a while, he wrote something somewhere, you know, for a magazine article or whatever. But for the most part, he thought 
it's not worth publishing. You should just teach, try to cultivate new young minds, a new elite with the right ideas. But he was completely closed off from the role that he was assigned in the wake of his first book in the early 60s of being a total, like a totally, you know, renowned public intellectual. He completely abandoned that and became a much more cryptic writer, a much more private person. His students loved him, you know, like these other University of Chicago instructors who were so beloved by their sort of seminar students. You know, it was like exciting to take a class with him. But his conviction starting in the 1970s was that the, you know, the best you can do if you're trying to save civilization from what appears to be its irreparable decline is teach. And this kind of like democratic engagement with a wider public became completely distasteful to him. I just want to add, Sam, on fellow teachers, one of the really great reviews I read in preparation for this was published back in like 2007 in book form by this guy named Gerald Howard. But he points out that he liked fellow teachers better than Alan Bloom's Closing to the American Mind because Reefs was like written in the heat of the moment. And there's something about Bloom's that because it was composed 20, 30 years after the fact, there was something about reefs, the quality to it, that was just, he found it more engaging and, and kind of exciting in a way. <laughs> it's the same dynamic that I was describing, which is that Bloom's book was so self-consciously performed for a public audience, like he was trying to shift yes, the sort of yes. intellectual public culture. And it had that effect. It was a huge book. Fellow Teachers was addressed to a much smaller audience of like similarly embittered university kind of creatures, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we really dive into Triumph of the Therapeutic and and some of the Freud book, I wanted to say a few things about Reef's influence on the right. The edition that I read for this was the 40th anniversary edition, which is interesting because it was put out by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute in 2006. But ISI is the organization of which Bill Buckley was the first president and kind of one of the more important groups on the right that's self-consciously intellectual. Like they keep Russell Kirk books in print, right? They keep Philip Reef in print, that kind of thing. Our Frank Meyer episode was all ISI books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And of course, it's very interesting in terms of like the broader Know Your Enemy universe that the introduction to this book was written by Betsy Lash Quinn, Christopher Lash's daughter. <laughs> I'm starting to understand. There was a sharp inhalation of breath from Alex Colston <laughs> at the sounding of the name Lash. I said this to Sam before we did this, which was that like I wanted to, to explain to me why Reef was a conservative figure. And now I'm starting to put it all together. Oh, it'll become even more clear soon. And, and I should point out, too, that that trilogy that was published posthumously, that was published by the University of Virginia under the auspices of the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture, which is probably best known nowadays for publishing the Hedgehog Review. But it was started by James Davison Hunter, and he's the author of the famous Culture Wars mm. book. Okay, okay. There we right. go. Okay, so Alex, to your question, Reef's influence on the right, uh, there's a couple things going on here. For one, I think he just gives the right the language of the therapeutic, which in their usage is definitely a pejorative, right? And we can debate precisely how much they actually take from Reef versus just kind of lift and use. But once you start looking for it, I mean, maybe Reef's biggest follower these days is Rod Dreher. And sometimes that means explicitly, directly invoking Reef. So in April 2018, he published a piece called 
the therapeutic is our ultimate terrorist. <laughs> Philip Reef in the self-fragilization of our oh, culture. No. <laughs> March 2019, we live in Reef world. How do good men and women live in an anti-culture that is blind and disintegrating? Fantastic. <laughs> and then one thing I did want to add to here is that I've noticed, especially in the last like 15 years or so on the right, the therapeutic, it's been kind of used to critique so-called like liberal religion, especially Christianity. So there's this sociologist from the University of Notre Dame named Christian Smith who coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. And it's kind of like the therapeutic has now invaded religion. So God is not judgmental. It's a God who wants you to be happy rather than holy. Ross Douthat kind of picked up this term and called it the Oprahfication of Christianity. So it's like talk of the soul is replaced with that of the psyche, you know, virtue and vice have been replaced with so-called values. Something like the prosperity gospel in the American context is like the most obvious example of religion, not as sacrifice or discipline, but as self-fulfillment. Carl Truman, a religious conservative who writes for First Things in 2001, published a piece called The Church Among the Death Works. That's another like direct invocation of Reef. And there's just like the number of times Rod, in particular, uses the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. It would take me 10 minutes to read all the blog posts with that in the title. It is worth saying that Reef does anticipate the idea that pre-existing kind of, you know, moral teachers, figures of, of public morality in the form of preachers and reverends and priests, that they are already, at the time he's writing Triumph in 66, invoking therapeutic language instead of the old kind of moral interdictions. And so the fact that people then say, yeah, that, that really did happen is in keeping with like his despairing vision from the mid-60s. I mean, there's something in Reef's work, like as you were just talking about his teacher book in Bloom, that's always in advance and always belated. Oh, that's interesting. It's never exactly on time. And it's, it's quite eerie. Like 66 is such a strange year to be writing this book this way. Mm. So maybe we could just say something about the book, which is that it starts with this kind of introductory chapters that lay out this groundwork that you're describing. But then it has three cases. Those three cases are Jung, Carl Jung, that Nazi fascist psychoanalyst. Then we have Wilhelm Reich, that possibly quite mad communist psychoanalyst. Yeah. And then <laughs> D.H. Lawrence. I'm like, one yeah. of these things is not like the other. It doesn't exactly square with what's also happening in American psychoanalysis. Where 1966 is this very strange flyover year where Reef's desperate wish to correct for what has gone wrong in all of these aftermaths is, is already no longer taking place. And in fact, something else is starting to happen, which is the disintegration of Freud, whether we mean Freud the man or Freud the theory and a kind of part for whole, the disintegration of Freudian life in the United States. And 66 is the year that that really starts to take place first quietly and then seemingly all at once in a number of different areas. And so his diagnosis is both right on time, but only because he's speaking about the 1940s and the aftermath of the Holocaust, and also like is, is preempting everything that's going to happen in the 1980s in the Freud Wars, of which there are several kinds. Yeah, for a book that seems so preoccupied with American psychoanalysis, 
all the examples, the case studies, as it were, are people who are not Americans. I mean, and that's, they basically have to telegraph this critique from the outside back into the American setting, which is, I don't know how, I don't even know what to make of that. It's just this displaced sense of the significance. One, one thing I wanted to say too, which I found really bemusing about the book is that Herbert Marcuse writes Arrows and Civilization in 1955, and it's a critique of neo-Fordianism. It's a critique of the spiritualization of psychoanalysis, which gets rid of the death drive. It gets rid of the kind of primitive myths. And it talks about psychoanalysis as basically an adaptive or an adaptational therapy to basically just kind of bourgeois mores. And that by doing that, it had undercut the radical significance of the psychoanalytic practice. But there are segments in Reef's writing that feel like blow for blow, like something Herbert Marcuse could have written. The one thing that's missing is that, whereas, as Eric Fromm once put it, you know, the neutral analyst is concealed respect for the social taboos of the bourgeoisie and therefore a kind of ideology, Reef won't go that far. He won't say, you know, <laughs> that the, the neo-Freudian deviation is just bourgeois morality. Like he won't go that far, which I find kind of fascinating because he's not a Marxist, basically. Marcuse and Reef were good friends, at least according to Reef. <laughs> and Reef attended his wedding memorably. And you don't get the sense Reef went to that many weddings. <laughs> and he said, this is from an interview, like towards the end of his life, he said, you know, we disagreed about literally everything. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but it is interesting, and I noted the same thing, that there's a sort of rhyming between their critiques of neo-Freudianism, post-Freudians, Freud's children, uh, that comes through in Marcuse's critique and in Reef's. I do think we should say for the listeners just like what the basic argument of this book is before we like go off into wild analysis. You know, at the end of Freud, The Mind of the Moralist, he sort of inaugurates the creation of a new kind of man, a new era of man, which in that book he calls psychological man. And this is replacing what had briefly been what he called economic man, the kind of archetypal personality of classical liberalism, which had in its in turn replaced religious man, the sort of like era of the Judeo-Christian moral universe, which in turn had replaced political man, which is the man that we derive from antiquity, from the Greeks. And psychological man was distinguished from these previous eras by, you know, sort of some of the things we've already been talking about. There's a quote in the last chapter of the first book where he says, psychological man is, quote, anti-heroic, shrewd, carefully counting his satisfactions and dissatisfactions, studying unprofitable commitments as the sins most to be avoided. He is engaged in a sort of careful calibration of the, quote unquote, economy of his inner life. So he has still the mark of, of economic man, but it's internalized that he's trying to you know, basically like be fulfilled and satisfied and, and happy. <laughs> That's psychological man. He's meant to be happy and healthy and well-adjusted, which Reef sort of figures in Triumph that Freud has something important to do with the inauguration of psychological man, but that he's not entirely responsible for it. And that's why he then looks to Freud's children in the form of Reich, D.H. Lawrence, and Young as sort of representative of these kinds of deviations, these kinds of efforts by inheritors of Freud's legacy to adapt Freud to the sort of like conditions of modernity and the demands of this kind of personality that, that wishes just to be soothed and to have a therapy of commitment, he will sometimes say. And that from Reef's perspective, 
we could talk about this more, but Freud is resistant to that. The analytic is always to be distinguished from the religious. And that's kind of the argument of the book. It's about modern man's search for a way of living in the aftermath of the declining power of the old moral truths. In particular, for Reef, the old sort of moral, what he would call interdictions and remissions, basically what you should do and what you shouldn't do, that those from Christianity and even maybe from classical liberalism, from classical reason, have sort of stopped being as powerful, and man is adrift and looking for something else, and that's what the book is about. I think it's important to note that psychological man... Which he then, we should say, sort of replaces in Triumph of the Therapeutic with the term the therapeutic. The therapeutic is psychological man. Yes, but in particular, those first three categories, those first three kind of types of, of human people and society, political man, religious man, economic man, they're all something constructive. They're philosophies of faith, right? There's something affirmative about them. And kind of like salvation for the individual comes through somehow merging into the collective. And that psychological man, this kind of fourth category, is is different because it's critical and doesn't offer then like a constructive, affirmative faith, right? And so that ambivalence is kind of then why you have these attempts in Young, Reich, and Lawrence, right, to go beyond Freud, to kind of evacuate that ambivalence in a way. But I kind of wondered for Alex and Hannah, like what did you make of the kind of big picture story that Sam and I were just describing that Reef offers like at the start of Triumph of the Therapeutic? I do feel like one other reason Reef is amenable to the right is he does offer another one of these big picture narratives, right? Of kind of declension or decline, like something shifted and happened and we're kind of stuck then in that. And I just wondered, especially as people far more familiar with with Freud and that tradition than I am, what you made of those first two or three chapters of Triumph. I I just want to bring out what I think of the motivating contradiction of Reef's treatment of Freud is, and that's from The Mind of the Moralist, and it's on 355. And I read this passage over and over again because I I thought it sort of, I don't know, it it got at the thing. He writes at the bottom of the page, he says, ideally, the democratic tyranny, which is the typical social form of our era, will not have a hierarchy of confessors and confessants. Rather, as I have pointed out in chapter nine, everyone must be a confessant. Everyone must aspire to be a confessor. This is the meaning of the psychoanalytic re-education Freud speaks of. In the emergent democracy of the sick, everyone can to some extent play doctors to others, and none is allowed the temerity to claim that he can definitively cure or be cured. The hospital is succeeding the church and the parliament as the archetypal institution of Western culture. What has caused this tyranny of psychology, legitimating self-concern as the highest science? In part, no doubt, is the individual's failure to find anything else to affirm except the self. Having lost faith in the world, knowing himself too well to treat himself as an object of faith, modern man cannot be self-confident. This, in a negative way, justifies his science of self-concern. It's a kind of fascinating passage. And he ends this chapter by, you know, saying that, again, there'll be this sort of resorting to myth that will help heal some of these kind of things, the therapies of commitment, whether on the left or the right. But this idea, I think, of an emergent democracy of the sick in which a concrete sociological institution like the hospital will figure as a significant weather change in the older institutions of Western culture, that really struck me as something kind of, for lack of a better way of putting it, both cynical and hopeful. There is an aspect of psychoanalysis that really does emphasize the mutual dependency of people, especially people who feel sick. 
And that, and to some extent, the generalization of psychoanalysis means that we're all kind of sick. We can't really give an account of ourselves as healthy, adaptive, and productive. And I, and I think something about the way that Reef does this, but Marcuse also does this, which is that when the Freudian Institutes adapted themselves to this idealization of health and productivity and the total personality and the spiritualization of suffering such that, you know, the best you could hope for is to just have a kind of integrative self, that path meant the loss of this emergent democracy of the sick, as it were. I don't want to fetishize that phrase too much because it's kind of, it would be a dicey proposition. And Reef despises democracy. He usually uses democracy as a pejorative. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so I think there's something in this shift that really what it is, it's, it registers, as psychoanalysis does, the shock of modernity, where the falling away of religious faith and mores and then the expansion of, you know, essentially the mode of production of capital has divorced people from their so-called organic sense of themselves in the world, where you're self-consistent, you're coherent, you live in a small community that you can make sense of. And the gradual expansion, historical expansion of modernity with all of its contradictions and confusions and displacements and dislocations both gives rise to psychoanalysis as a kind of both analysis of that process and a treatment of it, but it, it can't cure that historical stage altogether. Uh, so I, I read this really as a kind of lament about modernity. And these figures, whether it be Reich, Lawrence, or Jung, are themselves also suffering the shock of modernity, the world wars, the Holocaust, colonial violence, you know, the, the, the remaking of the world around imperialism and around the expansion of the capitalist mode of production. And they all do, they do offer therapies of commitment, as it were, to heal those things, but to lose sight of the kind of engendering of the unconscious historically is to also lose sight of this phrase, this democracy of the sick, and what it would mean to actually have solidarity in that respect. What does Reef mean by therapy of commitment? What distinguishes a therapy of commitment from how he sort of idealized psychoanalysis is that a therapy of commitment is just basically like the therapeutic, the era of the therapeutics idiom for describing a kind of discourse or method that would cohere people into like solidarity, into community. That's positive in the way that you mentioned that like most of this kind of analytic turn, this kind of turn to the therapeutic doesn't have. A therapy of commitment is something, it seems like a religion. Like it has, it, it tries to perform the function of a religion for a person's sort of psychology and sort of attachment to a community. The distinctive thing about the era of the therapeutic, the triumph of the therapeutic is that you know, religion doesn't really serve its function anymore. And he's he's suspicious of the attempts of Freud's, you know, wayward children to use Freud's techniques for therapies of commitment, for new religions. Freud is redeemable for Reef because Freud never tries to do that. Yeah, a phrase I almost kind of want to just steal from Reef, frankly, is this phrase of the uh, the negative community of psychoanalysis. You know, that by not capitulating to kind of a religiosity around communal life um, in a kind of naive way, but kind of holds out in the tensions and ambiguities of the self. I kind of like that. I mean, I, there's something about that that actually seems recuperable. I have a question for Hannah that might kind of clarify some of this, which is that I, I think one thing that we haven't really filled in is like, who is Reef's Freud? 
like I think we've sort of already implied that he's this much more kind of temperamentally conservative figure, like a figure of order. Realistic. He's realistic. I think he describes him at some point as like a statesman of the inner life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, there's, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, I think this this Freud is legible to me, given the amount of Freud that I've read. But he isn't exactly my Freud. And I would be interested to hear from you, Hannah, like, how would you characterize Freud as he emerges in Reef? And then how would you sort of differ or respond to the way he characterizes the man and his work? I love this question. After Freud's death, you can do one of two things. You can either go more wayward child. We had Freud, but now I will kill him, right? Or reclaim him or reintroduce Freud via whoever is doing the reintroduction, the killing, the taking over. So, of course, that's Jung and right here. They're both part of what's called the second generation of psychoanalysis. And then on the other hand, you really see this kind of presaging of what will become a major preoccupation of what will go on to be called the Freud Wars or one of the Freud Wars, which is a historiographic war fought through the medium of biography. And I think Reef is drawing on quite selectively in Mind of the Moralist, the first book, what he sees in Freud that is kind of making this both a new order, but it's an order nonetheless. And it is very strange because I don't actually think Reef has a Freud. I think there are kind of two, inside you is two Freuds. You get the sense that there is this kind of <laughs> wrestling in, in many of the paragraphs with multiple readings of Freud the man, Freud the science, a kind of metonym, right? And then what goes on to become Freud? Can I just suggest that like one version of what those two Freuds are is like Freud allied with the id versus Freud allied with the superego? Like Freud allied with the repressive and Freud allied with the liberatory? Yes. Like I think that that's the tension. The tension in the first book is a bit, which side are you on? And that is the question, right, of all of the kind of re-churning up and studying of Freud. And one problem is that I know no greater flexible thinker than Herr Dr. Freud himself. Yeah, You know, it's very easy to be a bad historian of Freud because you can be incredibly selective and paint very divergent pictures of both Freud the man and Freud the thinker. You want to say Freud thought the science of psychoanalysis was not for the poor? You have ample evidence. You want to say he was verging on the revolutionary? You have ample evidence. And in fact, it's both things at once, right? I think the, the hardest thing about loving Freud, if you do, is, is actually sitting in the depressive position, right? It's good and bad at once. And instead, I think in the first book with Reef, we see a lot of this kind of oscillation, right? A kind of wrestling with trying to work through how Freud could be one and the other. Both superego and it would be one way to put it, right? And that's because what psychoanalysis was when it arrived to Reef is, in fact, neither on the side of id or superego and is very invested in a kind of neutrality, is terrified of the political, is terrified of the social. And we still live in the aftermath of that story in terms of conservative mainstream psychoanalysis. And so Reef is kind of dexterously dancing around what psychoanalysis really looks like and means in the U.S., I think, while choosing these radically other non-American examples, even though we should say that, in fact, Jung did come to the U.S. with Freud on Freud's only trip to the U.S., 
Secondarily, Reich ends up here and dies in prison. And Lawrence, for many years of his life, thought he would live the rest of his days in Taos, New Mexico. So in fact, it is a, a story of emigration. And yet that's not ever really put into the mix, though it's what's being addressed. It's a strange one. Yeah. Yes. I have two questions, really, that Hannah, you and or Alex can take. One is the jostling, the kind of oscillating you describe in Freud, Mind of the Moralist. I think this would be a good place to maybe ask how much of that is due to Sontag's influence, in a sense, having two authors, almost, of the book. And then I'm kind of wondering, you know, there is a shift in kind of tone between Freud, Mind of the Moralist, and Triumph of the Therapeutic. And in those six or seven years in between, Hannah especially, I'm interested in what you make of like, what was happening in America, in terms of Freudianism, did anything happen in those intervening years, especially in the United States, that would have kind of turned Reef a certain way or maybe provoked him in a certain way? Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, with religiosity, with, you know, the cliche of the suburbs and alienation, and now all we have is a telephone call. And I think it's 1961, for the first time, church membership starts to decline. So there's a kind of religion and suburbanization and like, what do we make of the great economic miracle American story that's there? But there's also a lot happening in what we might call mental health care. Psychoanalysis, American psychoanalysis has its grand debut in World War II. Psychoanalysis always does really well in the World War or Vietnam War context, right? Because it has this theory of trauma. And suddenly there is money for the first time at a grand scale for psychoanalysis. And we have the National Institute for Mental Health in the 50s. But by the 1960s, just as we have this church membership decline and we're on the way to what will become the me generation of the 1970s, we have this other thing happening, which is that in terms of therapies of commitment, there's an actual breakdown of commitment, literal commitment, right? We have this ending of the asylum system of mental health care on the way to what in 1963 will be the Community Mental Health Care Act, which never gets funded. And so we're caught in this kind of limbo in the United States. What was the 63 Act, by the way? It was supposed to reincorporate those in care into community. So an investment in clinics in the city uh-huh. was one of the major kind of moves. And it really follows from this kind of great promise of the late 40s, early 50s expansion of mental health care. But like those expansions need to be put in real terms. You know, the kind of bills and the kind of funding that goes for the expansion of psychoanalysis is something like trained somewhere between 191 and 300 psychoanalysts at Menninger over five years, right? It's nothing. And so by 1966, when we have the triumph of the therapeutic, there would be other ways for Reef to write this book and write it, in fact, more compellingly. He could say, in fact, we've lost psychoanalysis in total or we're on the way to it. What's come instead are a group of cognitive behavioral therapists like Aaron Beck, Albert Ellis, who have said, in fact, no commitment, but not the way that Reef would have it, right? To have this kind of quasi-technological cure. So not the religiosity he's so focused on. We have the arrival of insurance, the increase of psychotherapeutic and psychotropic drugs. And so we have all of these kinds of literal conversions no longer happening. But also we've lost the conversions that are happening on the couch, which is the word an analyst would use for taking a patient from two times a week, say to five. So there's this kind of loss of the ritual and its replacement with 
what we could call the therapeutic society if we're following Reef. And I think that like none of this is stated directly, basically, and yet it is the absolute groundwater of the book. Yeah, it's said when Jung goes to America with Freud, Freud says to Jung, you know, they don't know we're bringing the plague. And a way to figuratively say what Hannah just said in more historical terms is that the medicalization of the plague and of psychoanalysis had already started well before psychoanalysis even really get any roots set down. That the medical, therapeutic, and technological treatment of suffering in order to make workers happier, healthier, and more productive already had won out against psychoanalysis in many respects in, during this period. Can you say exactly what that means, Alex? I mean, Freud wrote The Question of Lay Analysis, which was concretely and institutionally about whether non-MDs could practice psychoanalysis, that there could be lay psychoanalysis. And the American Psychoanalytic Institutes always had themselves a kind of ambivalent relationship to, to non-medical forms of psychotherapy. And so I think there has just always been a kind of professionalized, hospital-oriented form of psychotherapy that always defaulted to these behavioral or pharmacological cures that would always trump out over long-term talk therapy that psychoanalysis represented. And insurance companies and managed care really consolidated the capacity for psychoanalysis to, to grow. It's always had these kind of small revivalist camps, but by and large, it was underneath the shadow of a more hegemonic hospital system that looked at psychoanalysis as inefficient or ineffective or not evidence-based or what have you. I mean, which Reef says, like, the inefficiency is kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, right? no, exactly. This has been haunting psychoanalysis since the beginning. And in fact, like, my first reaction to rereading Mind in the Moralist is that Reef has it all wrong. But he says, right, that Freud was interested in this kind of grand unified theory of human unhappiness, and that's what makes him so great. And it is. But his example of how Freud was trying to work ignores a major part of Freud, right? Which is that he was invested in, of course, the arts, analyzing people dead. I mean, it was totally wild, but also like telepathy and the occult. When Freud comes to the United States, in our world, it's a famous kind of Clark University conference where psychologists aren't that into Freud, but all of these kinds of other people, including, you know, spiritualists and religious leaders are very interested in Freud. And Freud had this knowledge that he needed to usher psychoanalysis into the 20th century as a science, even right. as, of course, there would be all these indicators, if you look at Freud's entire corpus, of multiplicity of interests. And when psychoanalysis gets off the ground, it doubles down on what Freud started and goes full on medicalization. So the way that that plays out practically is that from, say, 1915 until uh, the 1980s, 99% of psychoanalysts are psychiatrists, basically. And that in order to practice as a psychoanalyst, but not be a psychiatrist, you need many special dispensations. And it's part of why in the U.S. psychoanalysis remains so, so white, but also so masculinized, because it literally had to do with who and is being allowed into medical school, who then finds their way into psychiatry, who then finds their way into analytic treatment. And so psychiatry and psychoanalysis are not two distinct phenomenons in the United States the way they might be basically anywhere else. Yeah, this also chimes with like another aspect of this that you not only see in Reef, but you see in Lash and you see in other people who want to defend a kind of more estimable kind of psychoanalytic critique, even if they're coming out of the academy, is that they have this immense contempt 
for social workers or helping professionals, you know, people who aren't the esteemed elite forms of medical professionals, nor are they cultural elites in whatever way we might mean that, you know, the idea is that there's a subversion taking place where people who have no business doing therapeutic treatment, social workers, people who are already in the kind of like shit of the daily grind and, and, and caring for people, they're not adequate to doing that job. And in fact, they're, in fact, they're taking away, they're vitiating something about the cultural order, cultural social order. It's a prevailing anxiety in people like Reef and Lash, but also people more explicitly on the left in the mid-century, the idea of like this kind of usurpation of the kind of role of the family, the father and the mother in parenting by the sort of like welfare state. And what's interesting when you think about Reef as being one of the origin points for this, because Reef was so influential on Lash, and Lash then wrote basically like three books that were inspired to a significant degree by this book, that Reef has no problem with like a completely unaccountable elite, which like creates the moral interdictions and remissions of a society. But he's very uncomfortable with the idea of a social worker being involved (laughs) in the creation of constraints and non-constraints in the family situation. The way you just articulated it actually really kind of rung a bell for me, because I, I do think that Reef's preoccupation is like basically with elites. It's like, are elites keeping good order? It's like the most classic kind of conservative, cultural conservative conceit. It's like, are the elites keeping good order? And from his perspective, they're not because they're aligning themselves too much with the impulses of the mass, because they become invested in kind of these therapeutic techniques that just try to make everybody feel better as, a, as opposed to trying to make them into better moral humans. And then his interpreters, like Lash, sort of like take that into, yeah, and now all these kind of social workers and teachers and stuff who don't have the kind of bestowed... Priestly. Priestly, yeah, right. Priestly kind of responsibility of an elite to shape the moral personality of a culture are engaged in this project too. And that's that's really scary. And let's also say it has to do with feminization, right? That priest being so highly gendered, well, social worker and teacher too. And so that's another thing that's happening in 1966 that's rather strange. Like the field of psychology in the U.S. wasn't feminized in the 1980s. It was feminized again and again and again across the 20th century, including before the arrival of emigre psychoanalysts. In 66, we're well on the way to that flyover date of more than 50% of those who work in the mind sciences, those who are social workers, being women. To the point where, like, in 1966, the exact same year, the very first AI therapist is made. And, of course, her name, her in scare quotes, her name is Eliza. She's not Dr. So-and-so, right? She's a Rogerian psychotherapist. And that started in the 50s, but not in time for Mind and the Moralist, right, where one of the productive things that comes out of the whole sort of new funding of mental health care is the category of the clinical psychologist who had never existed before. And so suddenly you have a non-psychiatrist, typically a woman, who's in private practice. And for the first time, that category grows until 1966, where, you know, you can see the, the origins of Lash's problems <laughs> very much in this book, but also I, I said to Alex, especially in the Lawrence chapter, where I feel like, you know, he cribs his entire political program. 
<laughs> it's, it's all there. It's what you've just described. But it also has to do with this other change in the field, which has to do with gender. Yeah, actually, on the, on the question of gender, too, I mean, just to return to the first part of your question, Matt, about Sontag. I mean, in the recapitulation of the Dora case, Reef does this incredible thing where he characterizes Dora as an obsessional intellectual who's trying to just like outwit Freud. Outsmart Freud, yeah. And not only does that fly in the place of Freud's actual diagnosis of Dora, who he diagnosed as an, as an hysteric, the whole recapitulation of the case has this distinct struggle in it that I read where Reef is trying to justify in some respects, not only the mishandling of the case by Freud, but by making Dora into this kind of like larger than life obsessional neurotic intellectual who's like his wife, like his wife. Yes. There's a weird reversal that takes place there where Reef is kind of immensely and deeply hysterophobic, just afraid of not being able to hold together all of the component parts that make up his myth. And I think you kind of can see that even in the, in the triumph of the therapeutic, which is that he wants to hold out for a priestly caste who will do the transvaluation of symbolic systems, you know, but it has to be the right people. Even when he indicates to like liberation theologians and like black priests and stuff, it's only the priests that get any recognition. It's not black movement or something. It's not the civil rights movement. It's just the esteemed best men of that caste, as it were. And so you just see this sort of immensely sort of patriarchal anxiety of just like only the right people can tell me how the culture ought to go. Yeah. I mean, partly because of my longstanding interest in Alexis de Tocqueville, I was struck by how often Tocqueville kind of pops up in Reef's work. And I feel like it's so interesting because if I were to like label Tocqueville and kind of what Reef took from Tocqueville, it would be the term aristocratic liberalism. <laughs> right. That idea that you were just suggesting, Alex, that like the, the right people still have to kind of be in charge. There's a moment in the book, it's in Mind of the Moralist, that I think gets to this exactly. And it's the way in which he thinks of Freud as well as an aristocratic liberal fundamentally. It's where he talks about what Freud did, because as I've sort of referred to earlier, like Reef's always trying to quarantine Freud from those of his inheritors, not who created this institutionalized medical apparatus that we've been talking about, as much as from the revolutionary impulses of people who interpreted Freud as a sort of license for sort of liberatory and kind of libidinal impulses in the human person. And so Reef's Freud counseled the enfranchisement of sex, not its emancipation, which is a kind of liberalism. Because this is Reef now, quote, by enfranchising the uneducable populace of sexuality, Freud seeks to bring it into responsible relations with the ruling power. It's about bringing the instinctual unconscious into the rational community, as opposed to unleashing it and living with the consequences of that. This kind of idea that only the right sorts of men, and Freud is, is just paradigmatically to Reef, the right sort of man, is positioned to do this careful negotiation with modernity that he's invested in. Yeah, I mean, I think this question of sex, of sexuality, is complicated, obviously, in psychoanalysis as a long history. <laughs> um, but the social political dimensions and contours of instinctual renunciation, which was really outlined paradigmatically in Civilization as Discontents, 
it's been taken up on the left and the right in different ways. And the question on the one hand is like, how am I satisfied? How can I get satisfaction in life? And then in Jacqueline Rose's phrase, where does the misery come from? Why am I not satisfied? Why does the pleasure principle not work? Basically, it's the vexed question of psychoanalysis. What I always want to say before I head into any questions about liberating sexuality or anything like that, is that I think Freud is utterly correct in one of the things he says in the three essays on sexuality, which is that there's something in the drive that resists satisfaction in and of itself. There's something in the body that doesn't allow for the satisfaction of the drives. And so if you're Wilhelm Reich, you say, well, that's not true. It comes from outside. It's capitalism. It's the death drive. It's the repressions of society that call for unjust instinctual renunciations. And I think that confuses the matter too much. It, it bends the stick too far in one direction. Another name for the death drive is that the satisfaction, unconscious or conscious, there's a crack in it from the beginning. In learning to live with that inhibition, aim-inhibited sexuality, as it were, is a mutual process. It is a collective process of, of not having fantasies that overpromise instinctual satisfaction. And that is a collective civilizational problem. It's one that can be, I guess, socially and politically managed, but managed is the wrong word. It's a weakness. It's a vulnerability. It's a crack in the person that fantasies conceal. And those fantasies can be violent, which is just that like psychoanalytic work when it comes to the drives is trying to traverse the fantasy that promises you, over promises you satisfaction through the figure of another person. There's actually a good quote, which is, we are not unhappy because we are frustrated, Freud implies. We are frustrated because we are, first of all, unhappy combinations of conflicting desires. Yeah. I mean, that's just seems, that's just my Freud. That feels like my Freud too. And I think the reason why I really like the first book is because he's better at navigating the ambivalences with, say, authority. That psychoanalysis, he says it so perfectly, is a parody of authority, right? You, you go in and you just you accuse and charge and lament and foment your resistance to this figure who's an authority, but they're not really an authority. They're just someone you're talking to. And you traverse that problem and you get a better sense of the fantasy that would lead you into those conflicts in the first place. Right, but that doesn't it that doesn't in and of itself solve the collective difficulty around authoritarian life. It just stages it and rehearses it for you. Well, just one thing like as we've been going along, I kept thinking about is that you know, Reef taught sociology. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, not psychology. And the first chapter of Triumph of the Therapeutic is called Introductory Towards a Theory of Culture. You know, before we go too much further, I wanted to kind of ask, like, what you thought about that move, the move from kind of looking at, at Freud and psychoanalysis and kind of the analytic posture, moving towards a theory of culture. And it feels like to me, in some ways, that's where Reef really is like a sociologist kind of using psychology or, or you know, psychoanalysis or, or Freud versus maybe someone whose disciplinary orientation was more firmly, you know, just in psychology or psychoanalysis. I guess what I'm asking is kind of how you think about kind of navigating that transition, like building a theory of culture out of some of these materials and what you kind of make of where Reef lands in that sense. I think that's a great question. And, and it might be helpful to just step back again and say, in the 1950s, the 1960s, even through the 19, early 1990s, psychoanalysis was everywhere. So it is not at all surprising 
that you would have sociologists and historians, but also literary theorists working with and against psychoanalysis, as well as psychologists doing whatever they do in the building across campus. In fact, the place that first rejected Freud was the psychology building. If you read like an article on psychology today, that'll be like a million of them that are like, was Freud right about anything? And then it's like, no. <laughs> he was right that moms matter when Freud didn't really deal so much with the mother. I mean, yeah, there's that kind of rejection. And so I think that what Reef is doing is, is very much in keeping with the kind of making sense of what Auden would call that whole climate of opinion, which is Freud, not just at mid-century, but beyond. And we see that rehearsed in all of the different Freud wars that Reef is actually helping give birth to, whether it's, you know, feminists contra Freud, whether it's the memory wars, which is taking place across many disciplines, then finally re-including psychology and is related to feminism v. Freud, whether it's this idea that I spoke about, is Freud basically a charlatan, which is, you know, a historical, and for Reef, it's a sociological question. That's the first thing, that it makes sense in his time, that now it would be really weird. Apparently, psychoanalysis is in again, but not probably in sociology, right? Like, there are still real disciplinary hang-ups since the 1990s. I mean, though, it, we can say the Freud wars were really successful hmm. and the anti-Freudians won. Yeah. I mean, the sociology thing in Reef is so wild. It's crazy that he's a sociologist. Like, right. let's be frank. He's not a sociologist in the way... I mean, there's a tradition in sociology that's like, you look at Durkheim and Comte and Alex, you were talking about earlier about like this kind of like big ideas version of the history of sociology which is completely eradicated from this sociological university building by the time, you know, Reef is writing his second book, basically. Yeah. You know, uh, sociology comes to be not about these these questions. It's like he's not so much a sociologist as like often like a right-wing Hegelian or something. And like, I think yeah. what's interesting about his attempt to translate the Freudian moment into these broad stroke cultural terms is that, as we've said many, many times over again, what he would really like to revive is a priestly caste to sort of like encant through the magic of the unconscious, some form of control that works for everybody. And to Hannah's point about the kind of the, the genderization of some of these terms, it's so interesting that the second volume of Reef's posthumous trilogy is called The Officer Class. Is it the decline yeah. of the officer class, which has distinctly militaristic intonations? Oh, totally. And it's it's so fascinating because one of my favorite things to look for in Freud is like when he uses military metaphors. It's like usually the superhero is on the side of the military. And then there's sort of like <laughs> this question of like, how do you get around the censor? How do you get around like the first and second officers? And the fact that by the time he's written his, what is really his like, you know, magnum opus, which comes out after he is dead, he's like, <laughs> I am on the side of the officer yes. class right, right. Ent entirely. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think there is, I guess I just want to say that the, in the question of culture, which seems so vexed often on the left, and I think a part of it is because it inherits these anthropological and sociological sentiments about culture which are really just sort of like ways of recuperating a sense of like, yeah, the, the remissive or the dictates of culture around mores and customs, 
But, you know, whatever. I'm a Gramscian. I, I believe that everyone's an intellectual. Just some people play an intellectual function by way of their organic position and that there can be a war fought on those terms. But the idea that there has to be a reserve or a cultivation to preserve culture is not only is that distinctly, I think, anti-Marxist in a, in a cultural sense, but I think it doesn't allow for what psychoanalysis purports to do on some level, which going back to the question of lay analysis, which is that everyone has an unconscious. Everyone is composed of these conflicting desires that, that break the person. And that listening, the vocation of psychoanalysis is a quite humble vocation. I mean, you can't imagine a practice with more humble technological specifications. You sit in a room with someone on a couch (laughs) and you listen to them. And in that way, that process can foment a lot of social conflict in the person. But the idea that that has to be a a culturally relegated task for the sake of social control seems quite anathema to me, to the ethos of psychoanalysis. Another good quote from our friend Philip Reif He says in Mind of the Moralist, to know thyself is to be known by another. This is Freud's powerful revision of the Delphic injunction. And I think that what happens to Reef is that he sees that to the extent that that is a revolutionary innovation upon the concept of self-knowledge or upon the concept of the human person— it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think so, and I think because it, it it doesn't allow you to have what what is the Hobbesbaum line? You know that 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 liberalism is basically a, a form of solitude. It doesn't allow you to have that solitude. That actually, if you want to know yourself, you have to be thrown open and yield to the other person. And I mean, I think to some extent, if I was again speculate psychoanalytically about the differences between the two texts, he lost his interlocutor. He lost the person whom whom he was thrown open to. And so that coiled and cloistered sense in the second book that seems so, not only does it seem so defensive, but so sort of righteously indignant about losing one's way does seem like it kind of dovetails quite nicely with which where every accusation he he throws (laughs) against the people who have deviated from his more pure sense of how Freudians ought to be, seems to be thrown back on him in some respect. I mean, by the time Susan is writing about her relationship with him in the 1980s, she is nostalgic about certain elements of it, like that it was all about talk. It was just talk. Yes. It was talk and talk and talk. She says they, they talked when they were like in the bathroom. She would not be willing to stop the conversation to go to the bathroom. He would follow her into the bathroom so they could keep talking. And I think, like what you're saying, Alex, that like the kind of delight and generative danger and excitement that is there in the talk between two people is something that he is both like mourning and then resenting his having lost it in the second book. Totally, it's sad. I don't know. It makes me sad. I mean, I don't, I don't want to pity a dead man too much, but but it makes me sad. <laughs> I did want to talk about religion a little bit more because. I think that so much of Reef's inheritance for the right, like, or sort of his inheritors on the right, basically, like, use him to describe this kind of, like, idea of, like, false religions replacing religion. Well, one thing I did want to ask is kind of, like, what does Reef mean by the triumph of the therapeutic? <laughs> it's such a basic question, but I think it's kind of the core one that we're trying to get at here. Because as I kind of suggested early on, you know, there really is a way in which Reef has provided a kind of vocabulary to the right of critique, right? Like they kind of 
call everything they don't like therapeutic in some senses. And so I want to talk about what that means kind of as we go along here, including the therapeutic as opposed to religion. Because I think in some ways, you know, especially as Reef gets crankier and goes along, it is ultimately or fundamentally a kind of faith-based critique or religious-based critique of therapeutic culture or the analytic attitude even. But on our way to get there, what does the triumph of the therapeutic, what does that mean for Reef? That the therapeutic has suffused every level of society. And of course, within that really kind of elite, quote unquote, culture or quote unquote, elite, quote unquote, culture. And that there's this kind of further hyper consumptive version of therapy that has arrived. I mean, that's true. And as I said, we live in the aftermath of that story wholesale. Yeah, I mean, I think the triumph of the therapeutic noise is shit out of me in some respects. So there's a way that I actually can see a kernel of truth to the critique. And that kernel of truth is that when therapies overpromise religious salvation, as it were, to a patient, it makes the psychotherapist or analyst's job way harder. If someone comes into the room with you and says, I know exactly what's wrong with me because TikTok told me what's wrong with me, or, or, or sometimes worse, someone who maybe got a kind of therapy where positive self-reinforcement was the only thing on offer to them, it takes forever to get to the negativity of that person, to get to the places where things don't work for them, where the dysfunction actually comes out. So I, I think in some respects, the triumph of the therapeutic has suppressed the curative capacity of psychoanalysis. And it has suppressed both like materially and concretely, but also more abstractly, the mental labor, as it were, of doing psychoanalytic work, which not only does it take a lot of time, but it also requires divestments. It requires changing your sense of self. It requires changing your sense of authority, your sense of your gender, sexuality, all those things that are questions that bedevil the person. If all of those things are already presented as a kind of like curative question of adaptation, how are you going to be able to do what Reefs calls the analytic work of deconverting them such that they can do that working through? So I, I, I think just at, the, at the, just the concrete level of like what the labor is, right, when you do that kind of work on the couch, that kind of working through is made much more difficult when therapeutic society overpromises what therapy can do for you and what it can do for society generally. And it's an ideological contest there. Because the whole point of psychoanalysis is that the patient doesn't know. I mean, there's there's this classic truism that the, the intellectual patient who's read a lot of Freud is definitely the most annoying. <laughs> totally. <Yeah. laughs> it's like when you have a Marxist grad student who you're trying to organize. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we have all of these different kind of ways that that reappears. And I think that the TikTok example, of course, is kind of incredulous, but is, is really real that at the base of this, you know, people are suffering exactly, and they don't know why. And various different means and methods and media say that someone does know why. And it's very scary to give up what we think we know about the why of suffering, because sometimes it's all we have, right? We saw this this past summer in the destabilization around SSRIs or any kind of chipping away at what we think we know on the grounds of how and why we suffer and how and why we cure, how we get better, I think is truly terrifying. 
And it's completely missing from Reef that it would be so. Yeah, I think also just on the theological level, there's a miscognizance or a misrecognition on, on Reef's part about the function of religion, I think, which is that a religion that overpromises salvation <laughs> that doesn't actually emphasize the fact that faith is a longing for faith, that belief is a belief in belief, which is a reflexive and desiring process. In fact, in a sense, that God is absent, right? Uh, that you're in a, in a weird position of having to conjure them. That is, in a way, staged the psychoanalytic situation around these dramatic terms like castration. The analyst doesn't know exactly what you need, what you want. You have to do the work of the longing of it. You have to do the work of, of believing in it. So, in fact, the therapeutic culture that Reef is talking about probably does trap in theological myths, but those myths are themselves not even quite theological. They're not even quite religious enough because <laughs> they don't actually get you down into the terrors of the soul. Yeah, I think that's right. I also think that there are moments in Reef where he seems to understand that, that like none of these therapies of commitment, these alternative religions really do provide the solace that he thinks that a pre-existing order of sanctions and interdictions provided. And there are times where he doesn't seem to get that. And there, and obviously, as we sort of alluded to earlier, there's this whole kind of post-reef tradition in conservative thought of like identifying liberal and progressive ideas with like replacement religions. You know, wokeism is a religion. Transness is a Gnosticism. <laughs> like all of these things. And and that that is Reef's inheritance on the right. But I think there are times too where what Reef points to, you know, whether or not like how it would cash out for him is acceptable to us, what he points to does have something to do with that question of like essential dissatisfaction that I think Hannah was referring to earlier, like, why am I miserable? And he sort of talks about this as like the repressive imperative or whatever. And when he's being a little bit more frank, what he's saying is like, why do we feel guilt? Right. Yes, exactly. Yes, of course. That's such a fascinating passage in, in Reef is guilt versus the sense of guilt. There's a moment in the preface to the 1978 edition of Mind of the Moralist where he says, for moralizing visions, psychological man has substituted a policy of keeping both eyes open to his deeper motives. So to challenge the old possibility that something is always hidden down there worth being ashamed of. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, first thing I'm reminded of is that Walter Benjamin says that capitalism is a religion in the cult, and it is a cult of guilt. It is not a cult of atonement. It's not a cult of emancipation. It's a one where you accrue debt you can't pay off, you're complicit in violences you can't amend, and right. you are basically inculcated, as it were, in the cultural sense of participating in the market because you have no other alternative. Yeah, complicity is its it's its exchange. It's its exchange value. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I mean to be kind of glib about it. And, and by the way, Walter Benjamin also includes Freud in that in that same indictment. The only thing I would add is that I think psychoanalysis can atone for nothing. That's not how it works. But it can stage those social contradictions such that you can get a little bit more free of them or find this, the negativity of your subject traversed such that you can find more collective ways of belonging to maybe overcome those contradictions. Even that's promising too much out of psychoanalysis. That's not how it works even still. So to be clear, when we talk about religion in our time, I mean, I think it's fair to say we're talking about capitalist modernity. 
in the disjunction between the satisfactions of the self and cultural and social and political promises and what can be delivered within this property regime, within this form of impersonal domination that capital is. Well, I'd be interested to hear from you, Matt, about this, because you are, I think, the only believer on the podcast. <laughs> yes. For my sins, I, I did want to say, you know, one thing I was thinking about here was uh, in Triumph of the Therapeutic, page 200, Reef has this line where he says, in all cultures before our own, the competing symbols took the form of languages of faith. Which I thought was so interesting, because I think this is where, if we want to talk about how Reef has been used or appropriated, you know, there's really a sense in which like that kind of assertion that like psychological man slash the triumph of the therapeutic is this kind of new era where everything before it had been in one way or another therapies of commitment, faith, affirmation. Its culture was religious. Yes. Everything prior to now was some form of affirmative culture of faith. And now we're in this kind of totally different moment. I think this is the substrate to the right-wing accusation that we kind of have this faith-shaped hole in our society and our souls, and we're constantly trying to fill it. So, as Sam, as you were just saying, like, wokeness as a religion, liberalism as a religion, and so on, they kind of use the narrative construction of Reef, and his ambivalence is about what Freud could actually provide say, see, what we're left with is this hole in our souls, in our society, and we're, we're kind of constantly trying to fill it with something. To me, that's the core of how the right uses Reef. It's kind of to say, like, everything successful up to this point has been a religious experiment in some ways, and now we're feeling that lack. And so everything we see now, it's all about kind of filling that God-shaped hole. And I think it should be said, the question is still the right one. But I think Reef actually can't be used for that argument on his own terms completely, because I don't think he, he suggests that you can actually just revive the old God terms. You know, it, actually, in 1973, he said, in particular, I have not the slightest affection for the dead church civilization of the West. I am a Jew. No Jew in his right mind can long for some variant of that civilization. Like, there's that. There's the kind of, like, personal biographical reason that he isn't a nostalgic for Christendom. But also the cash out of his intellectual work is that, like, it, it doesn't work. I mean, you can't just do it mm -hmm. again. <laughs> I think this is something that, that puzzled me, like, truly in reading Reef the relationship to Christianity that is there that then can be determined the way that you're proposing, Sam and Matt. There are many works that deal with Freud's Jewishness. You know, Hannah Baer recently wrote for Jewish Currents about the true kind of religious origins and orientation within early psychoanalysis. Jewish origins. That, of course, Jung, part of his sort of standout remarkable quality is that he's Christian and in fact, therefore passes out of what is called by the Nazis, the Jewish science into Nazification. The only really, like really one of the only people from psychoanalysis who's able to do so. He's the good boy. Of the Nazis. And, and all of that really seems to fall away. Like Reef saying like, no one would long for this who's Jewish, like agreed. But there is also this kind of re- orientation of psychoanalysis or explanation towards not just the Old Testament, right, but the new. That I found, re like, that is there. It is there. You're totally right. So there is something, yes, not on his own terms. I agree with that diagnosis. But he also sets it up. 
it is there enough. I can't help but be struck when I read not only Reef, but, but Lash, and that there's this longing for this communitarian ideal that seems to be, I mean, effectively Protestant or something, where you, middle class at the very least, you know, where there's a restoration of some scaled down form of living where the outstanding deranging, disordering, anxiety-inducing, anxiogenic effects of the unconscious would be reduced simply if you just had a nice family and you lived in a nice place. If you just had a trad wife. Yeah. And I think the thing is that what's puzzling about the book is that that is in effect what the Neo-Fordians were already offering suburbia. And so it's just confusing when you have these sort of grand historical magisterial terms because it defaults to the present just the same because it defaults to the property regime that induces all kinds of miserable sufferings and dislocations and, 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 and discordances in one's life. I mean, the, the central fact of a market economy is that you live in one place and the conditions for your living are elsewhere, and you chase your life across the globe via the wage. And that dislocation, that split subject that you become in that process is, is incurable so long as that property form exists. Well, there are these kind of moments where Reef will say something like, in industrial society, a certain kind of community is no longer possible, <laughs> right? I, I'm kind of interested in, in like what's really driving then some of the evolution and changes Reef is describing and narrating, right? Is it, is it really material, right? Like we organize ourselves economically now and that means certain kinds of community are no longer possible or is it, you know, something else is driving it? There are these little glimpses in Reef where every once in a while, again, maybe this is the kind of tension between a sociologist arguing about a psychoanalyst in some ways, but it's that tension there between like, well, you know, what's actually driving this? Is it really true that certain kinds of communities just aren't possible now for very particular economic and material reasons? Or is what's driving these, some of these changes more cultural and psychological? That that was a really interesting thing that came to my mind a few times while reading Reef. Well, I have to say just that that is the framework for the magazine, is that we're trying to answer those kinds of questions. Yes. Uh, listeners, subscribe to Parapraxis. No, I know. But I, I mean, not, not for the shameless plug, but just to say that, like, I, I think that tension is ineradicable, especially under current conditions. I, I, I guess I just want to say that, yes, I do think that Reef is both trying to do a kind of rearguard defense of liberal best men sentimentality. I think that entails all kinds of cultural and social prejudices that have to do with his masculinity and his sense of station in the culture, and that those kind of all dovetail into a, a sense of mourning a sense of community that maybe he once felt, or maybe a, maybe a kind of intimacy that he once felt around the capacity to think the world whole, either with his divorced wife or in his university or whatever. But all of those things kind of just scream out of the text in a lot of ways. But I think all of the dislocations have psychoanalytic aspects to them, as it were. But the total context of Reef, Philip Reef, enfolds both his sort of psychical agonies, which he's so candid about. I mean, you got you to give him that. He's honest about the agonies of his life. But they also enfold the social, cultural conditions of what he probably appropriately terms in the golden age of capitalism, the rising level of expectations and how even then liberal forms of U.S. liberal capitalist democracy did not deliver to him or to his peers that community that he was seeking. I've been thinking for the past 
week or two about Reef and his influence on the right. And it does seem like some of the issues that have become flashpoints today, issues around gender, sexuality, transgender people, that Reef might provide resources for the right that, again, other theorists might not. Someone who was attuned to the modern sense of self or claimed to be attuned to that. Someone who, you know, speaks the language of, of psychology and modern man's sense of self, how we understand who we are as human beings, how we relate to each other in community, so on and so forth. Again, Reef kind of, it's not surprising to me that he might be kind of the theorist for this moment on the right more than others. But when I was looking for how Reef has been specifically kind of cited and deployed around some of what I was just describing, I came across an article in National Review published back in May 2020 called The Romantic Sense of Self by John Hirschauer. And its kind of starting point is he cites this New York Times uh, essay written by a transgender woman named Meredith Tallison. And here's a quote. Tallison's story, at once anxious and indulgent, is a distillation of what Daryl Paul called the romantic sensibility of the self, a Freudian conception of the self as a unique and creative spirit whose reason for existence is its own expression. Drawing on Philip Reef's The Triumph of the Therapeutic, Paul writes that to preserve the, quote, romantic sensibility of self, end quote, the organs of, quote, therapeutic culture must constantly affirm those idiosyncratic selves whose behaviors or identities might be stifled by the mores of the collective. And I thought this really gets to the core reason why I think Reef is so important on the right right now. Even among people who don't invoke him. Yes. Like that category of the therapeutic and the way we're creating selves that we want to be recognized in a certain way and all that, the romantic sensibility of self. The real reason to kind of talk about Reef right now might be because so many of the culture war flashpoints around gender and sexuality, identity, they do have this kind of resonance with the therapeutic, with Reef's like society is a hospital now it seems so interesting to me that like reef is the man for this hour on the right i mean there's so much you could say here because i think there's so much that interconnects around this idea of the therapeutic or society as hospital but it comes back to this idea of like why am i unhappy and where does it come from and you know it would make sense reef gives onto a genealogy of thought that has a very particular idea of what it means for society to be hospital and what that is a symptom of in and of itself. But I think any of those kinds of totalizing grand narratives about why we're quote unquote so sick can be deployed any which way. And here with Reef, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't know this article, but that would be one way of shoring up that myth, right? We've known this problem exists for some 60 years. In fact, it's been happening for a hundred, right? Like that kind of narrative allows it to move out of the frame of the quote unquote culture war and into this kind of grand proclamation. And I think that you see that kind of tendency, whether it's about psychiatric medicine gets the same treatment and so on, haha, treatment, right? They, it all conforms to that narrative that you're drawing out there. I mean, the paragons of the right especially as symptomatically expressed to their cultural wars around gender. I mean, what are they doing but appealing for gender-affirming care? Not just care, but interdictions. Interdiction. They, yeah, self-justification. I mean, it's an unwillingness to question. I mean, Fanon ends his first book with by saying, Oh, body, always make of me a man who questions. Oh, I love that line. I mean, they should do it. They should question. And if they feel the anxiety of their body, 
if they don't know whether it comes from inside or outside, that's constitutive of the person. That is the psychoanalytic truism. That anxiety and the desire to be loved and affirmed in, in your body is a part of the anxiety of being embodied in the first place. It's a vulnerability about your person. And I think that these defenses that are just a matter of securing often nostalgic sociocultural symbols about what it means to be a man or a woman are deafeningly sort of loud about how much they want to feel secure in themselves, just as much as the person that they're demonizing. I think that is like the dominant affect and what subtends all of this, that, that insecurity that then presents as such security in the way things are, like in a kind of truth and order, which is actually incredibly brittle, but will punish everyone in the resubstantiation of it. I think that is one of the things that's odd about Reef being the resource on which these people are relying, because he is suggesting that none of these things are going to be particularly stable answers to these questions. That like the condition that has been inaugurated and diagnosed and in an ambivalent way created by Freud is a condition in which like solid answers to these questions are not going to be on on offer and sort of substitute religious impulses sort of substitute satisfying answers are going to be scarce i think there's two kind of contradictions that are fascinating to me about the way that the right psychologizes their enemies at the moment one is that like they will always accuse their enemies of having a religious commitment to their political ideas, which is based on the idea that what constitutes a religious commitment is not reliable. <laughs> so that they will say, like, you believe that because you believe it as a religious commitment, which then, like, imperils the viability of religious commitment. Yeah, it cuts both ways. If you're going to make that, if you're going to say commitment therapies on the left are suturing up the wounds of being a person. Why would that not be true of evangelical Christianity? And I think that thought has simply never once occurred to anyone who has who believes who believes that they're like winning an argument by saying that wokeism is a religion and then similarly with the sort of like sort of pathologizing of trans identity they're saying that this is not a real political identity right like it should be excluded from the political because it is an assertion from the realm of the therapeutic. And if they are arguing against the legitimacy of the therapeutic at the same time that they are arguing against the legitimacy of these political identities, then they're relying on the kind of hegemony of the therapeutic in order to make that argument. Yeah, it's a self-defeating argument, but I think it's also just to, to do like a cast back or a coda of the things we've talked about so far. In a way, too, it also flies in the face of the oddity and the polymorphously perverse aspects of the body that people are not slotted into the social cultural <laughs> distinction as neatly as you think, as embodied subjects, that the body is stranger than that. So this suturing up of cultural, social, symbolic roles that hail from a very brief blip of the nuclear conjugal heterosexual family, it doesn't actually stack up against, even if you want to stack it up against evidence, it doesn't even stack up against evidence of peoples. And so it's, it is re relying upon the therapeutic because it's self-curing. It has nothing to do with the lived embodiments of people. <laughs> it's, it's a self-curing appeal. I just find it despairingly and deliciously 
true that the reliance on reef inflected inheritances of like sort of intellectual system to say that trans identity is not legitimate because it's pathological and also the kind of sympathies that liberals and progressives have for the sort of claims of trans political identity are themselves religious in their impulses. Like the kind of self-contradictory involution of those two claims is kind of endlessly fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, this is a part of the reason why I wanted you to tell me about what the conservatives are saying, because I don't read them. <laughs> I don't have much patience for it. But I think part of being candid about the history of psychoanalysis practices is that it has engaged in its own forms of conversion therapy. It has engaged in its own kind of corrective sense of a person's desires. But I think, and I always say I hope, you know, this is my own faith in faith, you know, kind of thing, which is that so far as the unconscious is destabilizing and upends and short circuits are easy self-identifications around gender, race, location, place, religion, whatever. So far as the unconscious short circuits that, it allows us to traverse the fantasies that make those things possible. And in that way, we are able to see one another better and not just see one another through the familiar dictates and injunctions of our cultural place. And that to me seems the promissory aspect. And maybe this is even religious, you know, who knows? Maybe Reef is, is shaking his fist at me from the grave. Hope against hope. <laughs> There's that J- Janet Malcolm line, you know, where she quotes Ian Forster, that transference is such a narrow pattern of how you see other people. And that to see one another beyond transference seems so hard. That to me seems like political work, but it's also psychoanalytic work. What, what is it? It's, it's uh, no... Only connect, only you can't. Only, only connect, connect, only you yes. can't, is what she says. Yeah. Hannah, do you have any kind of closing thoughts on any of this? You know, in a way, I think that there is no like kind of closing thought. The reason I was interested in Reef is to recheck back in with the kind of origins of the conservative uses of Freud as escort for the kind of lash and neo-lash return, which we've seen, but also this ever-increasing sort of creep that there is something to the idea of the therapeutic society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like looking at every single quote-unquote quick fix for mass suffering, but also in the kind of cultural wars that you were just discussing, right? That it that it is in every pocket, that's in, that it is in every place. What was strange is that <laughs> Reef didn't help me understand it. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! What a waste of no, your time. What he did do was help me understand the origin of the panic better. Totally. We back to the uh. 1960s, because when we tell this story, we really do tell it as the last generation, the last 30 years, that something happened in the late 80s and early 90s that changed the reputation forever. And it was really it was really helpful to actually say no, that this first sort of issue, the first kind of moment of the Freud Wars really does start in, in the 50s, if not the 60s, when when there are these other kind of contestations about uses of psychoanalysis, like namely feminism, you know, your Brett Betty Friedan moment. And so it was so helpful to put Reef with Friedan rather than say put Reef with TikTok. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sure. It was really helpful to put him in his time and in his place. 
I think the fact of Reef becoming this closed off, embittered figure when the kind of person that represented the analytic ideal to him, that the two people who could know each other, uh, that you could know yourself through being known by another, that she is ambivalently, but still a figure of the sexual revolution. She leaves him for a woman. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. Like, That's right. yeah. that is there. Sam, do you think that had any influence on Reef's psyche in the <laughs> no, I don't. The following year, he, he, he clearly dealt, he dealt with it really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was pretty chill. Well, maybe that's as good a place to end as any. This was so fucking fun. You both were fantastic, and thank you so much for taking the hours to read these books and for this conversation. You both were really lovely and wonderful, and thank you so so much. Thank you so. Thank much. you. Thank Thanks, you, guys. Bye bye. Thank you.